You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. I'm not Kyla Lee. I'm Paul Doroshenko. She refers to me as her co-hostess with the mostest, which is a term I've never really liked. But she's not here this week, so I can reject that term uh, and uh, move on. So today I've got two guests. I've got Jan Semenov, and we're going to speak with him about um, concerns that we have with COVID and breath testing Uh, particularly breath testing with roadside breath testers, approved screening devices, which he refers to as PBTs. And then after that, I'm going to be speaking with Roy Ho of our office. Roy uh, and I have been thinking a lot lately about um, people driving for the gig economy and how much that has changed in the last few months in BC. And he thought that it was appropriate for us to discuss the, uh, uh, the concerns that people should have when they are um, insuring their vehicles for uh, delivery driving. So without further ado, we will move on to speak with Jan Semenov. Okay, so my guest today is Jan Semenov. Jan is an expert in breath testing, and he was presenting at a conference recently with the DUI Defense Lawyers Association. He's been on the podcast, uh, I think, with me and with Kyla before. Um, But something came up in that uh, conference that uh, really had me thinking and uh, Jan and I previously had talked about concerns of people contracting uh, uh, COVID-19 in the breath testing um, procedure but another thing came up and that was what happens with people who have had COVID-19 when they're attempting to provide a sample so welcome Jan. Hello how are you doing? I'm good. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, and uh, better quality audio this time. Yeah, well, you know, we're recording it now on Zoom where I'm getting more technologically adept when it comes to these things. So um, (laughs) hopefully, uh, you know, normally we have a a phone set up and we call and that seemed like the most reasonable and reliable way to set it up to have quality audio was a landline, you know, kind of like um, um, as it happens on CBC. Right. Uh, but uh, it seems that uh, the internet has uh, has come up with better ways. Well, the new normal, right? And we're all managing to adapt. I'm testifying by Zoom and Skype now, and I'm giving presentations on webinars galore. And it's a lot nicer for me. I don't have to get on the plane and go, but I don't get to see my friends. That's that's the downside. Yeah, well, that's the thing about the conferences is I like for me, they are a wonderful social experience where I'm with a bunch of other lawyers who understand my pain, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, understand, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm trying to do it. And when I'm, I start, you know, discussing concerns with, uh, uh, with instruments, they get it. When I start discussing issues that I see with police officers, they get it. So I feel like I'm, I'm at home with those people and I miss them. I do miss them. Yeah. Yeah. So do I, but you know, it, I think it's going to be a while before we're, we're hitting the, the, the friendly skies again, so we might as well get used to it this way. But you're right about court. I mean, there's no reason for a lot of these things that you're not testifying by Zoom or, you know, however, because um, why not? I mean, it's it's not like a judge or a jury has to be able to 
to see, you know, what's happening with your hands when you're testifying about. <laughs> well, you know, that's true. But breath testing. I, that's true. But I'll, I'll just before we get into our topic, I think it's really interesting when I'm testifying, you know, I testify primarily in the United States. And as you're aware, that means that these are jury trials. And it is actually, I think, a lot better to be able to turn to the jury and, and explain things until I can see the look that they get it on their face. This is a very dead medium. I, I, don't, I don't see you right now, even though we're doing this on Zoom. And um, I have no idea if, if the audience is going to understand what I'm saying. But if I'm talking to a person face to face, you get those visual clues to actually see that you're, you're making some headway here. So, so it has its advantages and disadvantages. I guess that makes sense in an American context more than in a Canadian context. Yeah, yeah, we're not, absolutely. We're not doing jury trials for impaired driving cases. Right, right. So, so let's jump into the about, issue, yeah. Yeah, well, I think the big issue here right now, um, first of all, is, is contracting COVID-19 from doing a breath test. I'm, I'm really concerned about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned about it too. And you and I talked about it a long time ago. I don't know if we ever talked about it on the podcast, but the manufacturer, of course, um, indicated that they shared our concern when things were, you know, coming, uh, when we were heading into lockdown in March. Um, and there's no reason that that concern would be, there's no way that that, no suggestion that that concern has been dealt with in any way. Well, in fact, um, Intoximeter, as one of the manufacturers, they manufacture the Alka Sensor FST that's used in British Columbia. And they actually put out in March of 2020 uh, recommended recommendations and guidelines for disinfecting and cleaning the instruments, both the uh, handheld ones that are used at roadside and the evidentiary ones that are used back at the police station. And they were actually fairly uh, extensive uh, directions on how to do it and, and what needed to be done and what kind of efficacy was going to be required and, you know, the whole nine yards. But within just a few weeks, that was withdrawn from their website, which really begs the question on why. Why would you take down something that is potentially going to save lives? Because they had identified in that material that there was five key ways that, that COVID-19 could be transmitted during a breath test. And for the manufacturer to come out and say, hey, look, we've got a got a serious problem here but then to turn around and withdraw it certainly raises a lot of issues for me well i think i know why they withdrew it and i think i'm the reason um you know i i published a blog post and i ended up on a in a news story about it and i know that the um the police officers responsible for um sort of overlooking the irp scheme in british columbia follow very closely anything i say about breath testing, especially on the news. And it was after that, um, that it appears to have been pulled down. So it was after I went public with my concerns about it, that it was pulled down. And so I suspect that they removed it um, because they uh, were concerned that people would be using this in a defense. And they were probably also concerned about potential liability. Um, especially, you know, the one thing I noticed in that document and I, I think I sent it to you or you knew about it. Um, yeah, you sent it to me. Sent it yeah. to me but the, um, they seemed to concede in there that there was nothing you could do about, you know, you, you couldn't eliminate the risk. Well, you can't eliminate the risk. And the problem is, is that if you think about breath testing, first of all, 
um, the exact area that, that they're looking to get a sample from, which is the deep lung, the alveolar air, is exactly where the virus is resident on an infected per in an infected person. So um, there's just taking the sample is going to the, <laughs> absolutely to the root of the matter in terms of, um, you know, the full epidemiology of, of what's going on. Uh, there's no way you can practice social distancing during a breath test. Certainly no way that you can wear a mask. I mean, the officer could wear the mask, but, but so what? Yeah. And, and realistically, um, I think that this presents as much a health and safety concern for the, for the officer investigating at roadside as it does for the citizen providing the breath sample. This is a two-way street of transmission, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, if I was the police associations, I'd be up in arms and saying, hey, maybe we should be suspending these programs um, until such time as we can, we can manage them properly and move on to something that's going to be a little bit more reliable. You know, maybe we have to go to urinalysis or go to blood samples or whatever, and they're not more reliable in terms of testing by any stretch of the imagination, but they would have less possibility for disease transmission. Well, standardized field sobriety tests also would have less possibility because the officer can stand further away. Um, rather than having a subject blow, you know, having them, having them walk and do horizontal gaze nystagmus and so forth. Um, but, you know, that doesn't work for us in BC with the immediate roadside prohibition scheme. Um, I yeah, guess I've never seen an IRP file that had any kind of recommendation or any yeah, they don't. They don't do it. It's not, it's not permissible. It's only what's spelled out clearly in the Motor Vehicle Act. So it has to be a fail on an ASD. Um, what what got me, or what surprises me, is that like in that in that manual, they show an Alcosensor FST being used, um, but it being used through a window on a subject, and right. the officer holding it upside down. And one of the officers I was talking to at the beginning of this told me that in his view, the appropriate thing was to, uh, was to, um, oh, I may have a problem with my mic here. Hang on, let's see if it's still working. Hopefully I'm still recording. His view was to turn it upside down. Um, and um, you know, I've never seen it since, right? Well, it, frankly, for a fuel cell, whether you're holding it upside down or, you know, like the old inside, outside, upside down in a box. Well, no, I mean the, the, the vent on it, right, on an FST goes out the top. Right. And so if you're holding it upside down, at least it's venting down to the ground rather than up into the face of the officer, right? Sure, sure. I've, and I, I've got no problem with that. It, it, it's not going to affect the uh, but, they, but they don't do it. But they don't do it, right? So right. here we are, you know, we're six months into COVID. It's almost six months since they, it is actually six months since they published that document that they've since removed um and we see that the police have done nothing nothing right. and they're not even wearing ppe um and that is really a concern especially if people have health issues i mean again i think it's a um it's a life or death issue and if it were me and i were a person with um underlying health concerns i would just take the risk of the refusal even if it's not going to be, even if there's no chance of you, you succeeding because the tribunal says, well, you, you took the risk. Right. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like you think of those impaired driving cases that you hear about every once in a while where somebody's got a, uh, the reasonable excuse and that is they're out hunting and somebody gets shot 
And so that, you know, the hunter who's over 08, but not shot, drives back to town. He ends up with a, an impaired and he's got a defense because he's, you know, tried to save his buddy. Right. And I always think in those cases, whether or not I had a defense wouldn't matter to me. I mean, I wouldn't give a shit. I'm just going to fucking save my buddy's life, right? You can convict me, throw me in jail. I don't care. Right. <laughs> like, so it's a, it's a bigger think, issue to be a, yeah. to be a so I, I think from the sake of, from the position of the, the potential refusal, um, you know, if it were me and I was concerned about health issues, I'd just say, fuck it. I'm not going to stay away from me. Give me yeah. the goddamn IRP. I'll, I'll take the 90 days if I have to. Right. Um, even if they, even if the tribunal is just not even going to give a damn about me, you know, I'll still just. Well, I mean, I say in my reports and I've done some research on this, it's, it's really interesting. I think that we're probably in a low risk situation if we've got a test subject with no predisposed medical conditions. And if we've got an officer who's taken, I'm not going to say all precautions, but all reasonable steps to prevent the transmission of disease. You know, they're, they're using their PPE, they've got their mask on, they've disinfected that, even wiped down the machine as best they can before. Yeah. And probably the disease transmission risk is, is acceptably low. But the problem is, of course, we don't have that. What no. we've got are, you know, a client who's living in a multi-generational home with elderly family members or has a a spouse with a pre-existing condition or a child who's under medical care or they're taking, you know, some kind of medication that suppresses their immune system or, or they're an essential service worker who has a contact with a lot of people. I mean, my, my wife is a teacher. She's been a teacher for 32 years. She's back in the classroom, you know, starting up a couple of days ago, which means that our social circle has gone from, I mean, Paul, I haven't sat down with my dad in the same room for the last six months. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, with, with Susan being back in the classroom, our social circle has gone from 12 people to 450. Yeah. Boom, like that overnight. So that puts, you know, an increased risk uh, for, for me. Uh, sure are a lot of police the sample for the officer, married, right? There are a lot of police officers married to teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so every one of those police officers runs the risk of every person they've pulled over. Uh, and also the people who've used the ASD before. Well, that was what was identified by, by Intoximeter. And they're, they're, they're basically saying that um, the, the potential for spread from, from in-between test subjects due to a contaminated device is significant. And, and interestingly enough, there's been no studies ever to support that. I don't know how they came up with that. But the closest analogy we've got um, are spirometers that are used in clinical settings for pulmonary function testing for people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, uh, emphysema, asthma, chronic smokers, like that, right? Yeah. And so there was actually a number of studies that have been done that takes a look at spirometers being used in the clinical setting and the cross-contamination that's, that's occurred. And interestingly enough, they've identified that there's cross-contamination of pathogens between the patient and the operator, um, and more alarmingly, between patients being tested by contaminated spirometers. You know, so I blow into it and I'm sick, and then you blow into it three hours later, and now you're sick too. You're contaminated. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, it's really interesting. They, well, they're, they, not, they're not using the ventilator hoses from one uh, COVID patient who dies and moving it down the hallway to use it for the 
you know, the cancer patient. No, no, they're, they're certainly not doing that. But if you've got okay. people... But no, but the point is they recognize setting. the risk, right? They, they understand the risk there. And why the police don't seem to understand the risk is, is baffling to me. But, but there's a huge difference, though, is my point. I mean, the cross-contamination that's occurring in these labs are occurring in clean, disinfected, sterilized clinical settings using medical personnel that are trained in epidemiology and infectious disease control. And, and yet it's can, still happening with these. And it's still happening, right? And this is a far cry from the cop, even with the best of intentions, wiping down a PBT at roadside with, you know, moist towelettes. Yeah. At, that, and, and then that's the external surface. The big problem is if you take a look at the um, inlet of, uh, and let's just use the FST as an example, um, the, the diameter of the inlet uh, on the device itself is about a 32nd of an inch. So, you know, you can a slide a pin down. I've, I've opened them up and there's vinyl tubes that run down one right. to, the, uh, to the flow sensor and one to the fuel cell. And then there's the fuel cell. And so there's all that area that can be contaminated. There's no right. doubt and the, and the, the And the problem, of course, is that, you know, you snap the mouthpiece on, it's got a flow through design. There's no protection with that mouthpiece whatsoever. I got into trouble one day in court. We were, we were, we were talking about this. I was being cross-examined. Well, you know, there's a spit trap on this mouthpiece. I said, no, there's not. The prosecutor said, of course there's a spit trap on this mouthpiece. It says right in the literature. And I said, you know, I have the mouthpiece in my hand right here. This is the same mouthpiece as being used in this particular case. And I, I took a sip of water and blew the, the water onto the courtroom floor through this, through the mouthpiece. That's dramatic. <laughs> yeah. What, well, what it was, it was, piece was it for an, an instrument or an approved instrument or yeah, yeah, mouthpiece for an approved instrument. Yeah. Right. Is it the flat one or the round one? Um, I can't remember. I think it was the round one that's got the little yeah. diamond pattern on the inside to break down the flow. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it, you know, so there's no so the purpose of that just because they've, whether or not it fogs up. Right. And, yeah. and the only purpose of that mouthpiece is so that you, you've got something that you can dispose of that's touching the test subject's lips. Yeah. It has no epidemiological uh, protection whatsoever. So now the problem is, of course, you put that mouthpiece in place and the op operator says to the test subject, blow, and the guy's kind of, you know, half-ass blowing, not really giving a good sample. And the officer says, no, 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 you got to blow harder. So now the guy inhales like that through the tube and sucks air back from the inside of the mouthpiece. Well, the problem with the coronavirus is that the, 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 size of the virus itself is one tenth of a micron so 10 millionth of a meter in diameter and it only takes a few hundred particles for SARS uh, contamination to occur yeah so you know the, the potential for cross-contamination is is extreme and many many agencies have identified that breath testing is a risk factor for their officers and they suspended their roadside breath testing programs and they're they're going back to blood or urinalysis well I mean the RCMP has a union now, so maybe they'll do that. I just pulled out of my desk a uh, FST mouthpiece, and you can just blow in and out of that one. Right. I don't know if you can hear me. The I've got an AlcoSensor 4 mouthpiece I had in another drawer here, and the AlcoSensor 4 has a little disc in there. Um, and I had clients who said, like, you couldn't blow anything, and maybe the disc was stuck or something. But you blow out, and if you try and suck, it does shut down pretty quick. Like, it would be much harder to suck something in through this one. And when they made the decision to go to the FST, um, I know the mouthpieces cost about the same, 
they, you know, I feel at that point they've made a huge mistake um, in British Columbia by choosing a device that doesn't have a one-way valve. Right. And, you know, they made that decision and now we're in COVID and I think it creates a circumstance where a whole lot of people will be well-placed to say, you know what, I'm not blowing. And right. if you're a BC Supreme Court judge, a lot of times I think they never have any sympathy for our clients because they can't relate to them because they are, you know, living in a completely different world than our clients. But when you're facing COVID and you're a, a 65-year-old BC Supreme Court judge, you might feel a little bit differently about it because you may have some underlying health concerns. And I would be thinking to myself, if I were in that circumstance and I had some young officer not showing any concerns, no PE, nothing, I'd be thinking to myself, you know what, even if I have an IRP, so what, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to move on to this other thing, though, because I think we have talked about this already a little bit. And it's uh, you can see our thoughts are developing as we talk about it. But the um, when I'm learning, um, but I'm, I'm really interested in the long haulers and the people who are suffering uh, lung injuries and have right. capacity issues as a result of this. Because unlike, I mean, in the United States, my understanding is you can you can refuse breath samples in many jurisdictions. Um, but not in Canada. You're facing a criminal record and a $2,000 fine. If you are incapable of providing a sample, the police will automatically, I mean, if you try and blow, even if you're, you know, doing your darndest, and even if the police officer is looking at you and saying you're doing your darndest, it doesn't matter. They give you an IRP for refusal or a criminal char charge for refusal. And this is a concern for me because well, what's going to happen with these lung capacity people? Okay, there's there's actually four different things we need to worry about, and uh, I did I've done a lot of research on this for for papers and for counterpoint articles. Um, one, one of the more frightening things that happens with SARS-CoV-2 and the way COVID-19 affects the body is the neurological effects that are occurring. Um, people are getting uh, difficulty with short-term memory. They have a, a ability to, or an inability to comprehend written and spoken words. They have difficulty learning new things. Some people are confused as to the date or, you know, where they are exactly. In essence, higher executive function scores are significantly worse for people who've suffered from, from COVID-19, and particularly the ones who've been hospitalized in ICU. I was talking to a lawyer today, and one of her family friends um, is a 70-year-old man who is a concert pianist and apparently quite, quite a famous guy, and he's having a hard time neurologically now playing the piano. He oh spent goodness. 45 days in ICU. And he has a difficult time remembering the notes. Now, you know, a concert pianist, these guys, they, they, they don't have to read Tchaikovsky. They've got, they've got that in their head because they played it a thousand times. He can't anymore. Oh my goodness. And, and, you know, he's having a difficult time with his fingers and stuff like that. So, and not that you're going to face this in BC. No, but, but, you know, we have this circumstance where every once in a while I have a client who's just not smart, right? They mm -hmm. marginal intelligence and they don't understand the demand and that's not a defense right you you can get a driver's license you don't have to be brilliant there's dumb people out there right uh, but lots of times they don't understand the demand and i just pains me to see that they end up suffering 
Well, I, I agree. And, but the problem is, and, and you know, your jurisdiction is one thing, but my big concern is this is not the type of person that should, that you were mentioning doing the standardized field sobriety testing. Oh yeah. He can, divided yeah. attention deficit testing scenarios. This is not the kind of ideal candidate for doing SFSTs. Might, may, not, may not be able to drive anymore, but maybe he can, you know, maybe he's still got the skill to drive and that, that, you know, it's not as complex certainly as playing the piano. But right. Have real problems walking and doing the walk and turn and following directions to hold. Oh, they'll them. they'll fail. They'll fail miserably. Is is my concern. And then you had mentioned the lungs. I mean, one of the issues is that the the pneumonia and the acute respiratory distress syndrome that surrounds COVID nineteen is creating long term damage to people's lungs, and they haven't been able to follow. COVID-19 victims long enough because it's, you know, it's, it's new and emerging. So we don't know what the long-term effects are, but they know it's SARS disease. So they're taking a look at data from the different SARS outbreaks that have occurred in the past. And they figure that probably most of the lung functions should heal themselves within about two years after you're recovered from the illness. But that means that in that two year time, you're going to have long-term problems with your breathing. Um, your, your pulmonary function test results are going to be off. You're going to basically have chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. And just so everybody understands about something, about something similar, I guess. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. So particular diagnosis, isn't it? I, that's right. That's right. But I mean, what you're looking for and what your, your, your listeners who have clients approaching them might be thinking about is go and get their pay, their, their client, a lung function test. Um, with those spirometers that we were talking about, the ones where the cross contamination can occur, but um, we can measure a thing called the forced vital capacity. And about 30 years ago, I was involved in a study at Royal University Hospital here in Saskatoon, where we looked at the ability of people with COPD to provide breath samples. And I mean, you know, I was told by the RCMP, oh yeah, they can blow, asthmatics can blow. I said, okay, show me your data. I got a case coming up, but we don't have any data. I found the manufacturer, show me your data. Well, you know, we know that people can blow. Well, where's your data? Well, we don't have any data. So I went, I went to Royal University Hospital and I presented myself and said, look, I need to, I need to find out empirically, where is the level that a person can and cannot provide a breast sample? So we ended up testing 103 patients, I think it was, all with severe COPD. And we found out that if they've got a thing called the forced vital capacity below about 1.8 liters, they simply cannot meet the three requirements for a breath test, which means blowing hard enough, blowing long enough, and providing a minimum volume of about 1.1 liters. So in the long run, uh, COVID-19 could be causing interstitial pulmonary disorder that's creating difficulties with that. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to see if we have a spate of refusal charges, you know, inability to blow that are, that are deemed by the officer to be a refusal at roadside. Yeah, that's almost guaranteed. Almost guaranteed. Um, and, and of course, they'll be deemed refusal because that's all they are trained to do. There's nothing, if you read in the manual, there's nowhere in the manual does it say, you know, do you think the person's legitimately trying to provide a sample? Uh, if so, this is what you do. There's no such thing, right? <laughs> There's only one conclusion. If you don't get a, a, a reading on it, a fail, warn, or something else, uh, you issue them an IRP for refusal. You're going to love this one. I had a, I had a case a couple of years ago uh, from Swift Current, Saskatchewan, where the RCMP had stopped a person leaving the bar. Um, and they made a demand 
and the person was trying to provide a breast sample and lo and behold, couldn't provide the breast sample. And the officer wrote down in his notebook, we got into stench comb material, you know, looks like she's blowing as hard as she can, but just can't blow long enough. And then I, I took a look at the um, uh, description of the, of the client um, from the driver's license description. And uh, she was three foot 10, <laughs> 72 pounds. She was a, a short statured person. Yeah. No lung function, no, no lung capacity to be able to provide that sample, right? Well, you know the story, and it's, it happens probably once a year that some police officer will tell me, my four-year-old niece can provide a sample. And all I'm thinking is, first of all, bullshit, because you're not allowed to fucking take an ASD home and try it on your four-year-old niece. Secondly, I've heard this for 20 years, and as a consequence, I've tested my kids, Right. <laughs> Right. My daughter wasn't able to provide a sample on an FST until she was nine. And, and the other thing is, when they, enough, I tested my, my boys and they weren't able to provide samples until they were about nine or 10 years old. Yeah. My son still can't. He's eight. Uh, yeah. Just can't, not, not enough lung capacity. The, um, uh, but, but what surprises me is there's no study. And the response is they've been trained to say this that my niece, my whatever niece can do it. Well, of course, none of them have ever, I've asked. I've, you know, I've challenged police officers on that. What's your niece's name? <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to, I didn't ask that. Uh, I'll, I'll bring her to court as a witness. How often you let you, do you take government property home and use it for a non, you know, non-government purpose? How many, how many government mouthpieces have you used uh, and made the taxpayer pay for to test your right. niece? You know, none of them ever have. Um, but well, there's, 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 there's this assumption that it's going to work and we're going to have a big pile of people. Like, I, I don't know, we haven't tested Kyla since, um, since she got it, but like she, right. she walks up the stairs here and she's panting. And if we are walking down the, uh, the hallway or even walking for lunch, she can't walk and maintain a conversation anymore because she runs out of breath. And, and she's relatively young and in good, good physical condition. Generally, yeah. You know, generally. Well, so there's two other issues that have arisen from COVID. And one is that um, long term now, we're also seeing people with uh, inflammation of their heart muscles and arrhythmias. Yeah. So you've also got this irregular heartbeat problem. And my concern with that is that the drug recognition officers are going to you know, in their two week long <laughs> course, they're going to, they're going to say, Oh, well, I, I detected arrhythmias. Therefore this person is using cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, were you in uh were you at the Denver uh, DUI DLA thing about three or four years ago? Was that the one where there was the, you guys went out and everybody went for cannabis testing or something? Uh, everybody, but me, I, I, I can't abide that stuff. I, I tried the CBD oil once as you're well aware yeah. on that on that study that we did and that's that's been well, it for me but no no so I, I didn't I, get to go to the denver one because i had a trial or some damn thing and i didn't get to go and i was pissed off i mean i wasn't going to go and use a bunch of cannabis because i'm not a cannabis user but i was well, i want to tell you i want to tell you really interesting stories about the arrhythmias and the dres yeah. dr lance platt was running the presentation and we had a long narrow room and we had two patients that had been dosed well one of them had been dosed two test subjects yeah. and Dr. Fran Django from uh, yeah. New York yeah. was doing the DRE assessment on one. And I was doing the DRE assessment on the other as 
as Lance, Dr. Platt, was explaining to the room the next step involved. So, okay, now they're going to do a pupil check. Now they're going to take a blood pressure, blah, 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 right? And I'm going through and doing this DRE assessment. And I don't know if I've got a dose subject or not. It's a Sunday morning. And here we are, 150 people in this, in this program. My test subject is a, a paralegal from a lawyer down in, in Denver. And as I'm taking her, doing the pulse check on her and the DRE assessment, I am detecting arrhythmias. Now, just so everybody knows, when you, when you do a pulse or listen to a person's heart beat, I was a primary care paramedic for four years before joining the police department. Yeah, you were. I've a done this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm taking her pulse and it should be like boom, 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 boom. Well, I mean, it sounded like John Bonham from Led Zeppelin going to town. I mean, her heart was just boom, 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 like this, right? So I'm thinking, well, first of all, I'm obviously clearly very rusty at doing this. I haven't taken a pulse in a couple of years and I wonder what I'm doing wrong. And then you heard that old expression about if your only tool is a hammer, all your problems are nails. Yeah, yeah. Well, so my only tool here is I'm doing a DRE assessment and I'm thinking, I wonder if this girl's got a cocaine problem. I wonder if she was using some coke last night and is yeah, suffering the arrhythmias. That's why, they, that's why they've given her to you. Yeah, that's why they've given so, me, you know, for this girl, right? Yeah. So anyway, at the end of the assessment, turns out Fran, Dr. Django had the, had the actual dose subject and I did not. I called Fran over and said, hey, take this, uh, this young lady's, she's like 22, 24 years old. Take her, her heart rate, take her, take her pulse. And uh, again, he turned her and he says, uh, has your doctor ever told you that you have arrhythmias? And she said, no. And he says, well, I don't want to alarm you, but you need to go to the doctor as soon as possible to get your heart checked. Yeah. Her boss, the lawyer came over. He was all concerned. He got her in the next day, Monday, to see a cardiologist. Now, how he pulled those strings, American healthcare system, yeah. he, he was able to do it, right? She went in for open heart surgery that Wednesday. Wow. So, I am I'm proud to say that my DRE assessment was the first known case of ever actually saving a person's life. Yeah, but you misdiagnosed her. I know. You, you thought she I know, because I assumed that she coke. was using Coke. Yeah. Right? If your only tool is a hammer, all your problems are nails, right? And then the, 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 the last saved thing. Saved your life, but you screwed that one up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The last thing that's really interesting about the COVID uh, victims who have recovered, well, well, two things. First of all, if you've already got diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, yeah. if you're a diabetic, you are at increased risk of contracting COVID-19. And we don't know, they don't know why, but you just are, okay? okay? But in the patients who have recovered, who have no prior history or family history of diabetes, they're now starting to measure elevations in blood glucose levels, and they're, they're determining that they're pre-diabetic or diabetic. Yeah. And, you know, very small percentage, but as we've discussed many times, diabetics are just not good candidates for breath alcohol testing and new technologies haven't changed that. They're still not good candidates. So realistically um, I'm concerned now we're going to start seeing pre-diabetics and diabetics emerging um, and getting dinged on a FST for an IRP or whatever, because but they, we're talking they didn't about know. Isopropanol and, and uh, potentially acetone. Right. In somebody's body. Are those either of those things identified with a infrared uh, instrument like a, a BAC data master? Or yeah, it depends on which one. They, they don't identify that that specific substance is there. They'll say there's an interfering substance present. But the only two units that are actually uh, reliable at that are the data master DMT that was not 
picked up in Canada. Yeah. And the Intoxilizer 9000, when I did the testing on it a couple of years ago, we showed that its specificity towards alcohol, ethanol specifically, is pretty high. So it would probably determine that there's there's other levels. But, the, you know, yeah, when a person both. is in the ketone production, they're they're producing acetone, they're producing other other ketones that are biotransformed into isopropanol, rubbing alcohol. And that's what the uh, fuel cell units are picking up. Kyla provided samples into a DMT in Montreal a few years ago. I was there. Somebody had brought their DMT up from the States. I don't can't remember who it was, but Ulrich Gauti was um, had his conference that he does in uh, in the summer, which sadly we missed this year. And she right. provided two samples, uh, like seven minutes apart, both contaminated with malt alcohol, uh, like just malt alcohol, because she had no alcohol in her body. She just swished vodka and waited about 10 minutes. Uh, and she provided two samples that were both like 15 milligrams. Um, you know, and you can see the sample, right? You can see it monitoring on that big LCD screen. Right. Uh, and yet you could, you know, she provided two that were contaminated with malt alcohol. It, two in a row, and those were the only samples she provided. Um, so I, 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 I was ready to, <laughs> I was ready to once again believe the claims of the manufacturer and you know the, it's more so not even the manufacturer of the police about how these things are perfect uh, until I, I witnessed it. I think I may have been operating the instrument at the time. Um, it may have been somebody else there. I found a photograph of it the other day and it just reminded me of it. So you know when they claim that it's going to do it, I'm just assuming that a, an infrared system is going to be in a better position to identify those things and the infrared chamber in the in like the intox ECIR2 that we use in BC in the police stations has a, like a six inch infrared chamber that's only designed to identify carbon dioxide. Yeah, the uh, ECIR2 actually doesn't do a very good job at all of, of determining these other chemicals in, in, in place. Um, and in fact, uh, the ECIR2 uses both the electrochemical and the infrared. It uses the infrared to determine the slope to find out if you're getting mouth alcohol contamination. Yeah, but, but it's, it's a really a crappy system. It doesn't work. It's a carbon dioxide slope. It's not even a, a ethanol slope. Right, right, right. Um, but it I mean it does. It just doesn't work. Cell. I've yeah. And I'm a, I'm a calibration technician, and I'm a I'm a I'm a ECIR2 operator. So I'm I'm certified at those factory certified um, on the and those on that device, and it just simply doesn't work. I have absolutely no confidence in the device. Hey, did I give you one of them? No, you were going to send me one of the old ECIRs. No, I have an ECIR too. I've got, I've got extra ECIR twos. I'll give you one. Oh, that'd be great. I'll, I'll take it apart and see how it checks on the inside. Yeah, there's, I mean, it, there's less in it than the Intox ECIR one. It, it seems like a bit of a joke. It's basically you take an Alpha Sensor 4, uh, wrap it in duct tape, um, and stick it inside and put a different display. It's not well, see, that's the thing because what what the ECIR does is that it basically uses, it's a big fuel cell device. Yeah, but it uses the same fuel cell as an alcohol before and the same apparatus holding it. The same yeah. celloid, the same, you name it, it's the same thing. It's just pulling it out of a heated tube instead of a tube. Right, yeah, but yeah. you're going you're gonna to love this. In certain jurisdictions in the United States particularly, um, they were having troubles with the IR component on the ECIR too. Yeah. So they were just software disabling it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I, I did hear that. I did hear that. I don't know where they were doing it, but you have no idea. We have no idea whether or not it works here. So just for the, for the listeners here, 
Um, the device, each time you do a sample, it's testing you on two different things. Now it says the analysis of the sample in the criminal code, it speaks of the analysis of the sample, but they only disclose to you one analysis and that's from the, from the uh, electrochemical fuel cell, right. uh, despite the fact that it's doing two. And one would think in Canada where we have all of these protections for disclosure in the charter, that we would get the analysis of both, but they programmed it not to give it to us. And to me, that is shameful, but I have yet to have, uh, well, I haven't lost an 08 case since the ECIR2 came out. I think I've lost one and it was on a, you know, that wasn't likely to have been an issue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, it's just a matter of time before somebody makes that argument, but you've also got to get a judge who's going to be going to be willing to listen to it and who's going to be understand it and is going to recognize the fact that when we've elevated these devices to be the guilt or innocent device, um, we've got to make sure that there are protections for disclosure. Yeah. Hey, do, the, do any of your listeners, you think they'd be doing any urinalysis testing or, or uh, looking at those results? And alcohol, you know, I, I have not seen a urinalysis test that I can remember that I've looked at from British Columbia. Um, and I've read thousands of files. Uh, I have read them from other jurisdictions, but when lawyers have contacted me, but not nothing from BC. Uh, you know, I, I think the, uh, it's such an easy target for us. Um, but, you know, like I've walked into court and there was lawyers who were conducting uh, um, trials on, uh, in drug cases where they were relying on DRE and there were lawyers who I've never seen in court before and didn't seem to be, you know, really understand their angle. They may have had a completely different angle that I didn't understand, right, or that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, you know, there's thousands of cases across the province all the time running, and I have no idea if it's if there's if there's any cases where they're using urine. But I think really, um, like I haven't seen it yet. Kyla might. Well, the reason I'm asking is because in my research, and I had a was contacted by a client uh, in the United States who had. Uh, her client was um, uh, on a probation violation and had been tested positive for massive levels of a chemical called ethylchloride, which is a metabolite of ethanol that's found in the urine. Yeah. And um, it turns out that it's probably hand sanitizer was causing the problem uh, because the levels that were that, that this person had were like five times a binge drink. It was like alcohol toxicity levels. And so I started doing some research on it and I found papers from, uh, from Yale Medical, uh, University of Florida, um, uh, University of Turin in Italy and uh, London School of Medicine, all talking about hand sanitizers providing false positives. And, and their concern was healthcare workers who are in a, you know, kind of a zero consumption um, pool and they would go into random testing and well, you know, nurse has been dismissed because she shows that she's got this ETG chemical in her urine and they find out later on it was because of the copious use of the hand sanitizer that was causing a false contamination. That doesn't surprise me. Not at all. <laughs> I fully expect that to take place. I mean, it makes sense. But if any of your listeners out there are dealing with, you know, probation violations or they've got a uh, client like that, you know, yeah. pilot approaches them. Hey, I lost my job at Delta just because, you know, this urinalysis came back positive. 
uh, get in touch with me. We can, we can deal with this. Uh, now. You, you know, if something comes up like that, that there's going to be two phone calls we make. One is to you and the other is to Scott Wonder. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly. Scott, Scott is the hands down expert in North America for uh, when pilots are charged with drinking driving cases. And that's another fascinating thing that came out of that conference that Scott uh, has talked about before. Uh, and I would suspect that there are very few lawyers who have any idea about the reporting obligations when pilots are charged with any of these offenses. And as I followed it, I realized, you know, I'm not in a position to deal with it because a lot of it is dealing with the FAA, even though you're a Canadian pilot. Um, I, the first phone call I'd have to make is to Scott, but um, I worry about the pilots because they're under so much scrutiny uh, and you, you know, hand sanitizer, perfect example. You know, yeah. The, uh, they use Alcosensor 4s in some um, countries to test pilots beforehand. Oh, yeah. You know and I know it's very easy to get a hand sanitizer fail on an Alcosensor 4. Sure, sure, sure. Or an FST. Yep. Anyway, uh, we should wrap it up. I guess we've been talking for a while, um, and uh, I have to tell you, I appreciate it. I enjoy doing these, uh, filling in for Kyla when I get the opportunity, and I'm, I'm, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, so thanks again uh, to Jan, and I'm sure you'll. Well, thanks have for having me back. I, back. I, 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 I just this whole idea of people who have had COVID. Uh, and the refusal situations is going to be an emerging thing. And I can just, I, I can see what's coming down the line. I can see what's coming because anybody who's had COVID basically is going to be in a circumstance where they will have a defense if they try to blow. So, um, yeah, interesting. I, 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 the other thing I want to talk to you about, not today, partition ratio when you have lung damage. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're, uh... we, have to, we have to think about that one. We're good to go on that one. In fact, uh, that's going to be an article in the next week or so or two weeks or so in CounterPoint. I'm looking at new Excellent. emerging data on partition ratios. So we'll, we can talk about that. When that's out. We can talk about it. Okay. Well, thanks a lot again, Jan. Nice to talk. Alrighty. Talk okay. to you, Paul. Bye. All right. I've got Roy Ho on the line and I am upstairs. Roy is downstairs. Roy, you there? Hi. Hi, everyone. Well, it looks, it looks like you showed up there on the uh, screen. So apparently we are recording. Uh, Roy is not in my bubble. And uh, so we've got to do this in a separate room. So how are you doing, Roy? Good. It's nice to see you. I mean, I can see you from like 12 feet away if <laughs> if I come into the office to see you from there. But kind of gets me down that I don't get to see people the way I used to. Particularly in the Richmond office. Well, it's a strange time. Yeah, well, I mean, what are you going to do? Anyway, um, I don't like talking about uh, COVID. I just talked about COVID with Jan Semenov, and I'm kind of getting sick of uh, COVID discussion. And everybody's always like, oh, you know, strange time. And I'm thinking, yeah, fucking strange time for me too, buddy. It's strange time for everybody. <laughs> like, it's it's so banal that it's not worth talking about. But there has been a uh, change that we've seen in BC in the last year or so, and particularly so since COVID, and that is a lot of people using their vehicles for delivery. That's right. Like for uh, food deliveries and whatnot, there's tons of services out there. People are trying to, you know, uh, make ends meet and pick up some slack. So then, and it's very easy to sign up. Like you just, you know, go on their website, fill out the form, and, you know, you click, 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 and you're there. And you could just start picking up deliveries and go deliver food and what have you. Yeah, but the issue is, 
you're buying your insurance from one insurance company and you can't necessarily use your vehicle for deliveries. That's right, because a lot of people forget this. One simple fact that, you know, when they renew their insurance initially or purchase their insurance pre-COVID or before they start doing this, they, they are using the car for a specific purpose, like going to work or pleasure use, right? To and from work 15 kilometers or less or something. Right. And most people, there's an oversight that they, they don't remember to think about it. And I'm cognizant of the fact that, you know what, hey, listen, my, my use is changed now because I'm doing these deliveries. Right? Is that easy to pick up that extra coin? And you know what they should be rating the vehicle for is commercial use. It's no different than um, pizza delivery drivers. They they uh, like Pizza Hut, Domino delivery guys. They all have commercial rated vehicles uh, because they're they're going back and forth and delivering food. And this is one of those oversights a lot of people don't um, are, just aren't don't recognize. And I've encountered a lot of cases where people are running into problems with. Their insurance, when they get into an accident, which, fair enough, the reason why you have to be rated differently is because uh, the insurance company's risk exposure is more because you're on the road more, right? I mean, they're running into problems because, you know, insurance companies saying to them, uh, hey, listen, you're not allowed to use your car as such. Well, you're putting a lot more kilometers on it. You're on the road. You're exposed to more circumstances where you potentially could um, have an accident. You're stopping and starting, which means you potentially could have accidents backing up and things like that. So I suppose that's where the risk comes in, and it's the extra kilometers. Um, yeah, well, it's, yeah, and and the pressure to drive fast because you're delivering, right? That's right, yeah. I wonder if there's uh, if there's any statistics if, if those professional drivers have a higher likelihood of an accident per kilometer. I'm sure ICDC would know. I don't know about ICDC, but in the insurance industry in itself, the underwriters, yeah. They base all their risk assessment on those stats, right? So what happens? North let's, American. Let's picture the uh, the guy in a uh, 2009 Honda Civic uh, who's uh, delivering for DoorDash or something like that, hasn't purchased um, commercial insurance and gets in an accident while driving. Um, his fault, at-fault accident. What happens then? Well, um Right now, as it stands in, they say have uh, just um, uh, business or work insurance. They're only about six days uh, in the calendar month to deliver. So uh, an investigation will ensue uh, because they're using it for something else by ICBC, and they're going to question and interrogate the policyholder on how often they use it, and they might even go as far as asking for your delivery records. And if they determine that you've been using it more than six days out of the calendar month, um, what happens is that you will lose all insurance. Um, if you had collision, it's gone. They're not going to pay for your repair of your vehicle or replacement of your vehicle. Uh, if, and definitely third-party liability. So you could be on the hook for a lot of money. If you injure somebody or do a lot of damage to somebody else's car, you could be on the hook for the whole thing. Absolutely. And and this is you know, one of those um, things where the ICBC's rate caps are not going to, or they're not rate caps, they're, they're settlement caps, aren't will not be in effect because you'll be in breach of your insurance conditions. Well, yes. Like, when you breach your insurance, um, typically speaking, like about maybe 90% of the time, it's for the whole shebang. It's the whole claim. It's everything from that claim, right? 
Over the years, lots of times when I had clients who were investigated for breaches back when I used to do this, and I haven't done this since you took it over like seven years ago, um, there was lots of times that ICBC would pay for the third-party damage, but they wouldn't pay for my client's car. Uh, it was just like, that was the bridge too far. Has it changed or are they, you know, in the dumpster fire world? I mean, I, I know I hear stories from you about how difficult ICBC has become. Um, has that changed or has this just never been that way for you? It has been that way for me. Um, however, uh, my experience with it is that kind of arrangement has to be negotiated. They're not going to automatically offer to you, we'll give you, you know, we'll cover you this, but not that. They typically take the um, starting position of we're not covering you for the whole thing, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when, when I talk to my clients, I'm like, hey, listen, you know, which one is worth more than the other monetarily? You know, let's, you know, write off this and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll push for this. And often, if there is a case being made to, you know, waive one coverage over another, um, ICBC will do it. But you have to make the case for it. Otherwise, they'll just default go, you know what, I'm going to take the easy route and just not pay for the whole thing. Well, you think the blood from the stone angle would be part of the issue because, like, so what if they you they don't pay for your car? You're there with your wreck and that's it. Uh, but they have to collect from you if they find you in breach. So sometimes it may not be worth doing it. You know, I, I used to think that too, but in my um, time of dealing with ICBC, I've, I've learned to realize that um, because they're such a big machine, uh, a bureaucratic machine, that um, uh, it, it is quite often the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And uh, the claims department, the one that makes decisions on coverage, doesn't even consider that because in their view, if you're if we're not paying for you, we're going to cover from you. It's going to another department, not my problem. Oh, okay. Right? They don't ask those questions at that at that point at that outset. Oh, you know what? Let's look at the big picture. They don't do that, right? Their lawyers might, but the the, the front line workers they don't. They they just you know very bureaucratically do their job in their role in their position, and it passes on to the next person, right? I guess I was asking too much from ICBC to, to assume that they were making a rational decision there when they were doing that. I don't, you know, I guess I'm well, wrong. To be fair, to be fair, some of the adjusters are wise or uh, reasonable or prudent enough. Well, to a lot of them are very understand. smart. They've been doing it for a long time and they can yeah, figure yeah, it exactly, out, but it doesn't mean exactly. that. Okay. Well, sometimes it's not a policy is what you're telling me. It's sometimes it's no, a decision it's that's being made by a smart bureaucrat in our government run insurance company. Okay. All right. So, uh, the, uh, piece of advice that comes from this is if you're using your vehicle for work for any gig thing, make sure you got the right insurance, I guess. Talk to your broker is what I can tell people at the end of the day, you know, explain to them what you're using the car for. If anything's changed your routine in the use of your vehicle pre COVID, right. Um, and your policy hasn't been renewed since, uh, you know, during the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. Go and talk to your broker and go, hey, I'm using my car like this now. Do I need to do anything? Right. Yeah. Before you start to use it like this. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right, Roy. Well, I've got you on the line. I'm going to uh, tell you about our favorite part of the podcast, which is the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Now, the Ridiculous Driver of the Week comes to me today from the Alberta RCMP. And this is a tweet that they posted on the 17th at 727 a.m. 
and it's got a photograph of a Tesla stopped on the side of the highway, and it said, says, Alberta RCMP received a complaint of a car speeding on Highway 2, so that's like the main highway, Edmonton, Calgary. You know that, you used to live in Edmonton as well, yeah. near Pinoka. The car appeared to be self-driving, traveling at over 140 kilometers an hour with both front seats completely reclined and occupants appeared to be asleep. Wow. The driver received a dangerous driving charge and summons to court. So dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. Driving your Tesla, 140 kilometers an hour on Highway 2 asleep. That is, uh, that is, uh, we, you know, we knew it was going to happen, right? Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> just, just a matter of time. I know the ridiculous driver of the week is the best thing. I mean, it's it, it, as a result of the fact that, I mean, I suggested it a long time ago, and uh, I try and get credit every time it's mentioned. Uh, but the um, as a result of the fact that we have it now, I'm all week long. I'm looking for the craziest, stupidest drivers uh, on the internet, and this one Kyla found it this morning and uh, and sent it to me today, and without any comment. So <laughs> I, I just assumed that this is what she intended it for. Um, yeah. Hopefully not that she's representing this person. Um, the, <laughs> but uh, yeah, 140 kilometers an hour, seats reclined, asleep, and now charged with dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. And maybe it wasn't dangerous. I mean, you know, if the car's driving fine, there's a defense, I think. Certainly <laughs> like the worst careless driving you could possibly imagine. If you were a judge, you'd be thinking to yourself, you'd want to sentence that person to jail just to send a message, I guess. Anyway, we'll have to see what happens with that one. So, uh, podcast is now over. Thanks a lot for listening. I enjoyed this one quite a bit today. Uh, thanks to Jan Semenoff. Thanks to Roy Ho, uh, for being my guests and thanks to the Alberta RCMP for tweeting this out. If you need to get a hold of Roy, you can give us a call. His number 604 three seven zero three zero five zero he uh basically is the uh office manager lawyer senior lawyer in the office in richmond uh and if you need to get a hold of me i'm typically downtown and we don't really mix the way we used to pre-covid and my number is 604-685-8889 thanks again for listening to driving law we'll be back next week with another episode thanks for having me thanks right 